Hey everybody, thank you for joining us for today's episode of Real Estate Disruptors. Today we have Oliver Seidler with Property Force, and he flew in from Miami to share how his journey to a thousand deals per year. If this is your first time tuning in, I'm Steve Trang, founder of the Offer Fast Homes app, the only MLS for off-market wholesale properties, and I help entrepreneurs create businesses that support their family lifestyle and goals through mentorship. I'm on a mission to create 100 millionaires. If you want to be one of those millionaires, please drop me a message on Instagram at steve.trang. If you're excited for today's show, please give me a wave, give me a thumbs up. And as a friendly reminder, I don't charge a dime for this show. I don't make any money doing this. So here's all I ask. This is what it costs for you to listen to this show. If you get value today, please tell a friend. You can share this episode right now, tag your friend below, or tell them your best takeaway from the show later on. That way we can all grow together. And this is a live show, so please ask away uh, all your questions for Oliver to answer. You ready? I'm ready. All right. So first question is, what got you into real estate? What got me into real estate? Well, I never knew really what I was going to do when I was younger. I knew that I wanted to have my own business and you know be entrepreneurial, be in sales of some sort. And uh, when I was in my last semester in college, um, actually all my friends had graduated uh, six months before me it took me about five and a half years to graduate and I moved scenic route. what's that the scenic route I, I did travel a lot while I was there so I had some good experience I was learned from experience and you know barely finished college um, but my last semester I moved out to California because all my friends at FSU had already graduated and um, out there I'd, I'd always been a waiter throughout college in Florida, tried to get a job as a waiter. Every actor and actress was out there, couldn't get a job as a waiter, got a job as a host at one restaurant and a food runner at another restaurant. And, you know, was finishing up my last semester, finished up. Um, you know, LA was tougher than I thought. It was a really big city, so ended up moving back to Miami. When I got back to uh, Miami or Fort Lauderdale more specifically, um, didn't know what I was gonna do, got a job at another restaurant there, just was like, this, this isn't working, got, had had my degree, so got my real estate license. A buddy of mine from college was working at a company called RealNet, um, told me about it, didn't seem like typical real estate. It was fast, dealing with investors, numbers, all that kind of stuff, so that appealed to me more than you know the typical Remax or uh, Caldwell Bank or anything. So had an interview um, with the guy who was running that office, and me and him talked, you know, ended up talking for an hour, didn't have a resume or anything done because all my stuff was in my car, you know, that I drove back from California, hired me on the spot. He's like, hey, put a resume together um, in a couple weeks. So I did that, gave it to him, and, and that was it. Just started there. Okay, so you started at RealNet. This is what year? 2004, March of 2004. Okay, and you just started. What were you responsible for? Well, when I started, um, the way they had everything set up was you would start in the, um, they called it sales, but the disposition side of the business and you would build a book of investors. So, you know, first day, boss took me out to one of the worst neighborhoods in Miami, Liberty City. We went into this house, it was flooded out. Um, you know, people living on mattresses on the floor. I was like, what did I just get myself into? Um, you know, went into the house and what we would do is, just go to these neighborhoods, put out road signs, looking for investors, you know, 50K, 3-2, people would call, you'd bring them into the office, meet with them, run them through the whole, um, you know, process and system and company and what we did. And, you know, the first six months was really just building that book of investors. So when this role then, you know, you're trying to build your book of investors, were you mm -hmm. commission? Full commission, yeah. Full commission. Mm -hmm. All right, so you were getting paid only if you moved the deal that the company had under contract. Yes, so the, I, I quit the waiter job because I just wasn't, I, di I didn't want to serve anybody anymore. I had done it for six or seven years. I had been a busboy, all that stuff. So so I quit that. I got a job actually as a night at a nightclub 
as a as a front door guy and I was working at the nightclub and then I was doing the real estate stuff in the day and I followed my my boss had laid out a really good system for me on how to qualify investors and how to kind of like you know build that book so I stayed really disciplined to that system the first month I didn't sell any houses the second month I sold I think nine or ten houses and you know had zero money in my uh, bank account and had 10k at the end of the first month quit the job at the nightclub and then was kind of off to the races that's incredible yeah Okay, so your job was just to move properties. Correct. Okay, and then along the way, uh, we were talking offline, you developed some good relationships as well. Um, you're, you're saying with the... With a couple of other companies we were just talking about a moment ago. Oh, yeah, in that office started off, there was about 15 of us in that office, and in the, in RealNet was about eight offices, probably around 100 salespeople. And they really, I think, were the biggest company kind of doing this this wholesale thing back then out, outside of Homevestors. And yeah, in that office, there was 15 of us. And um, two of the other guys were the guys that ended up going out to Texas. And one of them formed Net Worth, one of them formed New Western. And yeah, we all came from that, that office of it's 15 just... guys. And the guy, Mark Bloom, who started uh, net worth. He was 28 or 29 at the time. I was 23, and he was kind of like my mentor um, when I first came into that office. It's just so. crazy, like just these little you know incubation. You don't know where it comes from. Like it's mind blowing to me that three of you guys are all in the same spot doing your own thing. So yeah. 2004, but you didn't start. Well, I guess Meridian until 2006. So like, Correct. what happened along the way? before starting uh, Meridian. Yeah. Um, yeah, I was at the company for two years. Um, learned a ton at that um, at, at that company. Um, had a really good time. It was 15 of us, like I said. Everybody was in their 20s and 30s. I mean, it was a true- In Miami. In Miami, it was a true boiler room, you know, making a lot of money at 23, 24 years old. I mean, we <laughs> had like wrestling matches. Like we would clear out <laughs> our boss's office. I mean, it was a true, I mean, fun boiler room. Um, so. You know, learned a lot of stuff there, transitioned to the acquisition side, learned the acquisition side. And then, you know, they were they were lending um, money as well as selling the deals. But the lending side of it um, was, was really aggressive. And I, I didn't really know so much at the time, but, you know, kind, kind of just saw there's a lot of like, you know, practices I really wasn't comfortable with. Um, they wanted me to eventually go to another city and open up an office. I really like South Florida. I saw kind of, a, I think the writing on the wall of what might happen with that company. I had a friend who also went to FSU who um, had an accounting background and he was at a um, accounting firm and kind of on his way to being a partner there too. Me and him um, had bought a couple houses together and put a lot of money into that. And you know we worked well as a partnership with that. He kind of had more of that operational background. I had the industry background and um, yeah, we both left and um, formed Meridian. Actually, we worked at first for the first couple months out of my bedroom in a, I had a, like a little desk in my in my bedroom and we worked from there and started sending out some letters and yeah, got some traction. That's incredible. Now, mm -hmm. what were some of those practices that you were just uncomfortable with, if you don't mind sharing? Um, it, it really was, it, most of the stuff was on the lending side of things. It was just, you know, number one, we were ordering appraisals, which lending was based off of those appraisals and there was no underwriting process and, you know, just, it, it, it just it, it felt shady we were getting people into properties with very little money out of pocket and so just seeing that and then also a very kind of hands-off approach to management of the office and things just got a little out of control like i said i mean people were like you know we're having wrestling matches in in the uh in, in the middle of my boss's office clearing out the desk because he wasn't there and um you know one of the guys 
I'm definitely make him watch a show. He was from Penn State. Uh, he wrestled at Penn State. He's like missing a front tooth. His name's Mike. <laughs> Shout out to him. And uh, he would just like whip everybody's ass. And he was like five six. <laughs> and and so you know you just see all that. It was fun. But eventually you're like okay, so, uh, this isn't right. So so what was the biggest takeaway from there when you you know when you decided to go start off your own thing? Like what were some of your biggest lessons? Because like I can tell you when I started my brokerage. I had a great, you know, uh, mentor myself, mm -hmm. and I learned all the good things from him. Mm -hmm. Also, learned what not to do from him. Right. Were there any of your takeaways there when you decided to start off your own uh, your own arm? You're saying takeaways from the my boss at RealNet? Uh, just RealNet in general before you started Meridian. Oh, takeaways from there. Yeah. Um, I mean, the biggest takeaways I had there, I think, was you know following a systematic format um, for you know um, building my investor base and just everything I did was very you know structured as far as like how my days would be you know go put out road signs field calls from investors you know meet with investors or do whatever it is and then the same kind of thing when I went to the acquisition side of it so I think that really helped um, it really helped to go into a lot of houses um, probably in that time frame of those two years I must have you know, went into at least like two, three, four hundred houses um, in different areas, just kind of seeing all that stuff, dealing mm -hmm. with a lot of investors and, and yeah, just learning from, um, you know, people I was buying acquisitions from, the investors and all that stuff. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, so 2006 when you started Meridian, now, when did the bust happen for you guys? So, like we were talking about earlier, um, me and my partner had put all of our money pretty much into this one house in Pompano. And we thought it was gonna be a 30, 40K rehab, turned out to be like $120,000 rehab over a long period of time. And so we had a lot of money into that house. When we'd started our business, we put both 15K each into a bank account. And then the rest of our money was tied up into that house. So we kind of saw, I think in Florida, it happened a little bit sooner than everywhere else because um, we had two hurricanes hit back to back in 2005. So the market flatlined really quickly. After that, people were collecting insurance checks, waiting on all that stuff. So we sold that house, luckily, in the beginning, around probably April or so of 2006, got our money out of that. And we sold it for 350, I believe, or 320. And that house, you know, a year later was worth probably 110, 120. So luckily we got out of that. We saw the market kind of flatline right after the hurricanes in 2005 and six. And then I would say the beginning of 2007, the market started to kind of creep down and then the subprime market crashed in, two, in June of 2007, June or July. And that's when prices started like free falling. Right. Uh, so you guys didn't really experience the, the pains of learning this new market until you started, until after you started your company. Um, uh, until after you started your new company. Um, the pains of the free fall. Of the market, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, when I was at RealNet, everything was like going up fast. And yeah, yeah when um, all, all the stuff with the, um, the going down, I had no experience with that at RealNet. Okay, so when you started Meridian, tell me like, what was that like when you first started it? When I first started, um, I mean, it was just straight hustling. You know, like I said, we'd started it from my, um, from like my house, um, a little desk that we had, started doing some mailers. Um, once we did our first couple deals, we actually went to the nicest office building in Fort Lauderdale and we got the smallest office literally in the whole building. It was, they said it was 99 square feet. A couple months after we were in there, we measured it, it was 79 square feet. I tried to get a <laughs> refund from the lady and it didn't work out. But um, 
you know, so so once we kind of got a little bit of money, we wanted to get into that nice office space. We wanted to feel good when we came into work, um, you know, be motivated, be around people that, um, you know, were successful in this building. You know, it was like the prime building in Fort Lauderdale. It was all, you had like, you know, lawyers and bankers and accountants and all those kind of things. And I, and I think a little bit of us like the fact of, you know, seeing these people who are professionals and, you know, we would come in you know, casually dressed and, you know, like the, we strive to kind of, you know, I guess I want to say beat those people, but, you know, get ahead of those people. Mm-hmm. And so that was, you know, I think, you know, important in the beginning. So you guys start your company and the market, market tanks. And I, I can't speak for, you know, the Miami market intelligently, but I can mm-hmm. tell you what I read in the magazines. Yeah. Right. Cause you guys had a whole bunch of condos that were built with the intent of, 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 um, you know, selling them. And not only did they, not get completed, but then there was also some funds that, you know, where did this money come from? Mm-hmm. So like, how did you survive all that? Um, I mean, the condo market was different than what we were doing. Um, they, they just overbuilt, you know, I remember um, I, I would spend a lot of time in North Miami um, and downtown where all the condos were going up and just seeing them. and you know, like where is all this money coming from and all the supply, you know, and there was pre, uh, pre-construction, you know, people would put it under contract and then like a month later sell it for a 50K um, hit. I mean, at the time I'm like 23, 24, so I, I don't know what's happening. I'm just kind of, it just didn't seem right. Um, and yeah, I mean, Miami's, I mean, as everybody knows, I mean, it, it's a shady place. There's money coming in from, you know, all different countries and there's liquidity. I mean, the whole city was built on you know cocaine money in the 80s or whatever it is and it has that you know it has that element to it so i think you know one of the big things that got us through was you know we we were getting screwed over left and right when the market was falling um you know the buyers had all the control so they would lock up a deal and then they would try to back out or hit you with a credit or do whatever it is i mean there was times we'd be literally begging investors hey just close on this deal we drained our bank account two or three times the negative and so but i think throughout the whole thing no matter all the different things we went through we kept our principles our ethics our morals um and just did business the right way as hard as it was because sometimes we could have maybe made a little bit of extra money on a deal mm-hmm. or whatever it is um, but by keeping um our you know, integrity, um, reputation, all those things, and and staying true to you know the I, I guess our morals and just good business practices. When when the dust settled and everybody went out of business, we had a good reputation, we had good practices, and all that. And I think that served us well um, after the market bottomed out and kind of started going back up. That makes sense. So, when did what kind of volume were you doing? And the reason why I want to emphasize on this is mm-hmm. because there's speculation, like, you know, when's the market going to go down right now, right? Mm-hmm. And so you've gone through this cycle mm-hmm. before where you kind of saw this kind of happen. Yeah. And so I want to, you know, kind of like talk a little bit more about that. So um, what was your business like when the market took a, uh, took a tank? Um, I want to say we probably did... Let's see. I would say our first year, probably in 2006, we maybe did 100 houses, 80, 100, something mm-hmm. like that. 2007, probably about the same. I would say probably we might have been averaging eight or 10 a month for 2006, seven, and eight. Yeah. Yeah. And then who did you see getting hurt when the market? Took a turn. I mean, you have late adopters, people who come into the industry late. You know, you have the people who jump from, you know, this to that. I mean, you know, Bitcoin to uh, to 
this now to you know from the stock market the mm -hmm. dot com thing so you know all the people that jump to where the where they think the money is the late adopters they got killed because they don't understand the nuance of the business um you had people who held inventory um you know particularly flips that didn't make sense as rentals so if you bought a house for three hundred thousand, the assumption you're going to sell it for four hundred thousand and it rents out for 1500 and you can't sell it and you're stuck with it and you have 10 of those you're done mm -hmm. and so that that was you know a lot of the people um you know the people people who are greedy um you know like i talked about the lending with my old company i mean mm -hmm. things like that so people who didn't work hard you have to have resilience i mean things you get like punched in the face every day and you just got to keep coming back again and again and again so so then what did you do to turn it around um i don't think there was any you know one thing like i said i think just sticking to our principles and our business practices and you know our integrity and like you know i think the the learning i had done at RealNet served us really well plus the operational background that my business partner had um it was really just riding through everything and just coming in every single day taking it taking it taking it in. and then and you know in 2009 um like i was telling you before when the houses that were selling for 180 wholesale went down to 50 and everybody looks at it and it's like wow you can get a 20 25 return on this house because it rents out for 1200 everybody else was gone and the field was clear and then you don't have competition mm -hmm. and then you're kind of you know you're riding a it's you know clear path ahead of you and so i don't i don't think there was anything really specific that we did to turn it around besides outlast everybody yeah so you outlasted opportunities started coming back yeah and once the opportunities were back you started picking it up yeah and were you holding on to these wholesaling these um flipping these in 2009 we I believe in 2009 or 10, uh, my best friend was in California. He was working for a home builder. And so he had a lot of experience with the construction and management and, and stuff like that. So we, he, he came back to Florida. We partnered, me and my, my business partner at Meridian partnered with him in buying properties. And so we raised, um, I, don't, I don't remember how much money, but we bought about 100 houses from 2009 to 2013 in the bottom of the market. So that that was one thing we did. Like w once those prices, we took advantage of that. And then um, what was the other part of the question? Well, just what, what did you did you wholesale them? Did you keep them? Yeah, so we, so we kept those and then the rest we wholesaled. Um, okay. The only property I've ever fixed up and flipped was the house in Pompano that I told you was a complete disaster. <laughs> I, I have no interest in So that changed flipping. your taste uh, for flipping. Yeah, and then when I bought 100 rentals, that changed, uh, that changed my taste for rentals too because it doesn't scale with economies of scale. It's mm -hmm. like as you get you know more roofs, more houses, it's more problems, more spread out, harder to manage, more vacancies, and the return just kind of goes down. That's why people buy, I think, buildings. Um, mm -hmm. You know, it's one roof. So... so 2009 2010 right bottoms out and mm -hmm. you're starting to acquire and wholesale more so what kind of volume were you doing at that time 2009 and 10 we you know i think in 2009 after it flatlined we were able to really start to put some processes and systems in place in 2009 and 10 hire some agents and you know just build some infrastructure for the company and I, I would, I don't know, maybe in 2009 or 10, we, we probably maybe went up to like, let's call it 15 houses per month. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, our first real success, you know, every everything in business, you feel, you, you always think it's gonna happen faster than it does. And it's gonna be, you're gonna make more money. It's gonna be a shorter time frame. yada, yada, yada. I, I probably say the, 
The only time that that's ever really happened where it's so far exceeded my expectations, we opened up a second office. Our first one was in Fort Lauderdale in that original building, but we had moved into a bigger space. We opened up an office in Miami. And, you know, as I was talking to you and some of the other guys, Miami is, you know, uh, it's, it's just a different market. It's a place people fear. They don't know it. We opened up that office in Miami. We got some re really good talent. Uh, one of my best friends, little brothers came from Canada, moved in. Um, me and one of the guys from Fort Lauderdale opened up that office. So we had good talent, but there was like nobody in that market and it was super volatile market. And we just had, you know, a ton of success when we went there, far expected, um, exceeded our expectations and crushed it. So that was in 2011 and we probably went from, you know, let's call it whatever, 13 to 15 deals a month to 30 or something like mm -hmm. that, 30, 35. From and opening a second market. From opening that second office, yeah. Okay. Um, and so when, when did you say that was approximately? That was 2011. 2011. And then when did you open your third market? 2012 in Tampa. Okay. So, and then this is one thing that's just kind of took this exponential. Yeah, we got, you know, that was good. I mean, that office might've done an extra 10 deals a month or something mm -hmm. like that. Then 2013, we opened up an office in Orlando, same thing. They were okay. They were never great offices for us, but yeah. yeah. So one of the things I wanted to talk about as well is that, you know, like there's a lot of people that are interested in getting into the business and the struggle initially is like, man, how do I get my first deal? What do I do? You know, how do I find that? And once they get it, they're excited and talk to the seller, how do I get them under contract? Now you got them under contract. How do I sell the deal? Like there's this whole journey, right? To do your first like 10, 15 deals. Mm -hmm. But then after that, everyone's sales and marketing, it looks pretty similar mm -hmm. until we get to this next challenge, which is people. Mm -hmm. So, you know, how would you say that your business is different as far as like, you know, recruiting, uh, retention, all this stuff? Like, how do you guys separate yourself from everybody else? I mean, I think culture is, you know, the, the biggest thing and it starts there and really investing in culture and, um, you know, building as good of a culture as you can, attracting the best people that you can, um, being selective with who you bring in. And then when you have, you know, really good people just doing everything in your power to, um, you know, make them happy. I look at it now is, is like, I work for them. You know, it's mm -hmm. like, how can I clear the path? Because, you know, I have people in marketing, you know, finance, tech, people on my sales floor who are technicians, you know, the sales side of things, um, finance, all that stuff. They're better than me at those things. I, I don't have the expertise in each one of those. So it's like, how can I kind of make all of those work together, clear their barriers and obstacles? I mean, my sales guys know 10 times more than I do about the intricacies of the deal. And, you know, my marketing guy knows more about, you know, marketing and sales leadership and, mm -hmm. you know, all, all, all those different things. So, you know, it's really you kind of, I think, you go into more of a mode of nurturing and, and, you know, clearing the path. So culture is something that people talk about, mm -hmm. right? And everyone says they want a good culture. How do you demonstrate? How do you develop that culture? What are you doing? Uh, developing a good culture. I mean, you have to listen to, you know, feedback from people. I, I try to meet with everybody in the company once a month, um, it's just kind of a, a free free chat like hey tell me what's going on what's good what's bad what issues do you have any good ideas and um, that's been a really helpful thing now I have to split it into where I meet half the company each quarter and so that that's been really helpful getting the feedback responding to the feedback can you do something you know yes let them know if you can't why can't you do it mm -hmm. so I think communication is a big component of it I think our office space 
lends a really big um, part. You know, we, we kind of created this open, um, you know, West Coast type of um, environment and culture, and it's bright. And, um, you know, we play music and, you know, we just went into, a, you know, dress code, no dress code. You could wear whatever you want. I mean, we have some people wear a three-piece suit, and now people wear shorts and hats. And, um flip-flops which i'm very against but they they all like, give me shit for that because i whatever they they can wear whatever so so i think it's just catering to that and then you know naturally in your company when you when you start it you know me and my business partner our dna is coded into the company because you're going to hire the people that match your dna mm-hmm. and then you know you kind of look and there's some exercises i think in traction or whatever it is uh, there's one called mission to mars to like looking at it and saying like okay well what is that? Like, how do you extract what that DNA is? Um, what are those value systems? And then once you kind of have that really hiring people that match those values mm-hmm. and um, align to those values and kind of getting a bunch of like-minded people together. And, right. and I think that will just build on top of itself. Uh, another thing that we, we were talking about on the phone at some point was virtual wholesaling. Mm-hmm. You know, like it's really popular, really sexy right now. Mm-hmm. For the last couple of years, it's been pretty popular and pretty sexy. Mm-hmm. But you were doing it before. Yeah. Talk about that. Yeah, we started the company in 2006 and it was all virtual. Yeah. Um, so we were sending you know, letters and doing different things to find deals in all the different markets in Florida. And um, we were working a lot with wholesalers in those markets to sell the deals. And yeah, we were doing it virtual and we would get feedback from the investors and we would adjust prices and do different things. You didn't have... Um, you know, there was RealQuest back then, but there wasn't the mapping systems and, you know, satellite views and all that stuff. So, you know, we, we just did it and I don't know, figured it out and, and it worked for what a while. What were you doing back then? Like, so you're doing direct mail predominantly or were you doing? Yeah, predominantly. Okay. So you weren't like cold calling? No. I mean, okay. you didn't have skip tracing, cold calling. I mean, right. we don't do that stuff now, but, but we don't, yeah, we didn't have any of that stuff so you're I mean, sending on direct mail they call you and then there's a conversation from there pretty much gotcha yeah. i mean rv uh, it's funny because i used to tell my boss at RealNet, i was like man i'm like i feel like if you could just get because back then they had dialers you know it was a it was a big thing i had a friend who had an insurance business and they ran the whole business off it i was like i feel like if you could do dialers in this industry it would work and I would always talk about it. And we, we never did it. Um, it was a much more complex. You had to run it through do not call us and all this stuff like that. Um, but I guess now it works and you know people are doing that and right. doing well with it. So uh, Someone made a comment here. Uh, e. Russo, Meridian crushed direct mail in South Florida. How much were you guys mailing per month? So how much were you guys mailing per month back then? Back when? Uh, when you were Meridian. When we were Meridian, a lot. A <laughs> lot of a mail. Lot. I, I don't even remember at this yeah. point, but a lot. <laughs> so at some point you transitioned from Meridian to Property Force. Mm-hmm. What was the reasoning behind that? Um, in 2014, um, my business partner and I, um, we both wanted different things. Really, our visions for the future changed. Mm-hmm. Um, I kind of wanted to like really grow the company aggressively and you know, I think he was happy with where it was. We were, it was, I mean, it was good. We were making a lot of money. Everything was, you know, going well. But, you know, I think once that vision changes, it makes it really hard. Um, you know, small decisions um, mm-hmm. become big deals, you know. So um, that that was splitting. I ended up buying him out at the end of um, 2014. And then at the end of 2000, and then through, through 2015, I was like, how can I kind of build this? How can I make it more scalable? And so... Through a lot of like, you know, consulting and talking it through, we decided to um, consolidate our four offices into one location. Absolutely horrible the way that we did it. 
change management and you know i didn't even know change management existed you know we, we built this whole office ready to go you know shut down the four offices in in like one day drove around the state it, it was a mess but um you know we consolidated to that we wanted to you know rebrand ourselves um, meridian trust just kind of had more of a financial bankery feel didn't really talk about what we did so we figured property force um was you know, a little bit more industry specific. We were always wanting to be big and push the envelope with technology. So it had a little bit of a technology type of feel to it. Mm -hmm. um, and we got the domain for, I think like three grand. That was a, you know, hard thing is finding a .com now. So yeah, that was it, we rebranded. Yeah. Um, so I like that, you know, you're talking about rebranding, targeting, you know, for like this, this tech feel. Mm -hmm. So, you know, and doing my own research, checking out the website, looks super clean, mm -hmm. does feel very techy. What does Property Force do differently than other people in Florida and Georgia? Like, how are you guys setting yourself apart from the competition? I mean, I think the culture piece is, is really big and putting a lot of emphasis on that. Um, we're really bringing in like high level, um, you know, people and professionals. And then I think the technology piece, I mean, you invest a, a lot of money in um, technology and just, you know, ways we can streamline things, automate things. Um, we, I know a lot of people I've listened to the show use Podio and that's built out. and. I, I don't really know about it. I haven't done it. I mean, we, we have spent millions on Salesforce over the last mm -hmm. like eight, nine years. I'm a huge believer of that. I've gone to their conference in San Francisco twice and all the different things that they're doing and adding on, but it's, it's expensive. And so, you know, just doing whatever we can to constantly, I think staying in the niche is a really big thing. I don't have any interest in flipping. I don't have interest in holding rentals. Um, I told you I like hard money. I like hard money because I don't have to do anything for it. I can concentrate everything on the wholesale business, but it's constantly looking at like okay how can we you know stay focused and stay in our lane buy and sell wholesale and then how can we do everything we can around that to improve the process tighten the process make it better and better while staying into that niche so how's let's pretend i'm a homeowner mm -hmm. why should i sell with property for us versus you know some other wholesaler i mean you know professionalism we really try to you know, do our best to um, give a good service, make it really easy for them, um, give give good customer service and, you know, commit to deals. Like if we say we're going to close on the deal, like we're going to close on it. I mean, things happen. We have to back out here and there. Mm -hmm. But, you know, just really trying to give a professional, um, give good customer service, we put a lot of emphasis on, you know, training. Um, we want to get into more developmental training and, you know, setting us up, setting ourselves apart with that. And yeah. Okay. Uh, one of the... You know, I think, again, going back to like a lot of listeners here, right? You know, they're, they're doing anywhere between one and 10 deals a month, right? Mm -hmm. 70 to 100, like that's a whole nother realm. Mm -hmm. Because I, I got to believe, you know, going from 10 to 20 is, is, is one yeah. big challenge. Going from 20 to 40 has got to be another major challenge. 40 to 100 has got to be another major challenge. Mm -hmm. So what does someone who wants to be like you five years, like what, so what kind of pain? 10 houses? What kind of pains do they have to look forward to if they want to build a property force? Look, a lot. Um, <laughs> I, don't know. I mean, to start, I mean, the market, you know, like at the end of the day, you know, we ebb and flow with the market. A lot mm -hmm. of times when we do a lot of deals, it's because there was a lot of turnover in the market. There's a lot of house sales or whatever it is or cash sales. You know, you have to contend with the market. I mean, the market has to change at some point. I mean, I think I thought it was gonna happen for the last three years. I think it's softening now. So mm -hmm. it's just, you know, pivoting. I mean, who knows right now you could buy a lot from direct to sellers. It could go back to foreclosures and short sales. And, you know, can you figure out how to buy them? But, you know, if everything was to say constant and nothing changed, you know, to go from 10 to 
30 or something, I, I would say it probably has a lot to do with delegation. Um, you know, can you, you know, get people that are going to be able to buy or acquire as good as you can on the phone and, you know, motivate those people. And, and, you know, that that's a part of it. I would say delegating is big and systems and processes, really setting up like good, consistent systems, processes and following them and, you know, staying focused on the niche. Um, systems process, getting them to follow it mm-hmm. or having good systems and processes. Mm-hmm. How did you create those? <sighs> I have a very process-minded brain, so I can look at something and see where there's redundancy or, you know, it's like, hey, this is an extra step or, hey, there's too much control by management. There's too much red tape in this. Like, let the person have discretion. So I'm I'm able to look at processes like that. I think also having outside coaches, consultants, things like that that can help you look at them is really good. I can do that. I cannot run processes. Mm-hmm. Like, once it's like, hey, this, you know, like, we've we'll, we'll reduced step, you know, two and five and now it's better and now this has to go over and over and over and over that's uh, i have no clue how that happens i mm-hmm. you know it's not my strength it was my old business partner strength mm-hmm. and now people in the company who have that but you know it's not just structuring the process but then it's like making sure people are following it all the time having the checkpoints you know i, I know everybody reads traction and stuff so um, the scoreboards and you know KPIs where you can identify okay here's a problem number well let's look into the number and maybe something in that process fell off so how do you get someone to consistently follow the processes? Because I think that's one of the challenges too, right? Like you can have the best systems and processes in place and give it to an employee. How do you ensure, you know, that whole thing, like, you know, inspect what you expect? How Fear. are you guys doing that? Fear. No, Fear? I'm kidding. I don't know. <laughs> no, I, I, I don't know. Like I said, I, it's really not my expertise. I think it's you hire the best manager or the mm-hmm. best person who can make sure everybody underneath them follows the process. They might have different ways ensuring how that how the people that report to them are going to follow their processes Mm -hmm. but i think it's finding that right person that who's going to manage that process on top of it or on top of that department or whatever it is and and leaving it to them because they're better at that type of thing so i i i can't give you best practices the biggest thing i have is you know kpis and scoreboard i mean i'm humongous believer we spent a ton like i said in salesforce and one of the best things is salesforce is you get live reporting with the dashboards. And I'm sure Podio has the same thing, mm-hmm. but by constantly for me, monitoring those numbers on the dashboards is really big. And then also we have like that exact traction um, scoreboard built out where every important number is there. So for me, looking at it on the bigger picture and a lot of different numbers, if I see um, you know, a number of leads are down, you know, um, by 50%, well, okay, let's dive into there and see why maybe the mail process was messed up or something like that. Mm-hmm. And that, that's really what, where my where I come into it. Well, I like that. So going to 30, we talked about some of those challenges you're gonna have. Mm-hmm. 30 to 60, what new sets of challenges are you gonna face? I, I You know, for us, I, I didn't see a big difference from going from 10 to 50, 60. I think it was the same, like develop the systems, build the culture, bring in the right people, all that kind of stuff like that. And I didn't see much of a different thing with that. It's more 60, 70 to 150, you know, Mm -hmm. 200. And that's, you know, where I'm still at trying to kind of figure that out. But that's really, um, you know, the big part. And I'm in an entrepreneur group and they call it the desert where a lot of companies, you know, get to. And some of the guys in my group are all kind of in that same, you know, position and it's 
it's tough because you have to take it's like one step back to take two steps forward so mm -hmm. a lot of times you have to eat into profitability put some extra technology systems people xyz cut into your ebitda your margins um to to kind of go past and um you know break through to that next level and that i think the main thing is around people like we kind of talked about and bringing in the right people can you elaborate a little bit on the on the desert on the desert um how do you know you're in the desert you plateau you know you're yeah. you've hit a you know a certain point and you you for us it's like you know you put in infrastructure on that next level mm -hmm. but you haven't gone to the next level like our infrastructure is built for 150 200 properties which obviously costs a lot of money mm -hmm. but we're not at 150 200 so it's can you stomach that you're making really good money at let's just call it 50 deals per month 40 deals per month and then to go to that next level you have to invest in infrastructure yeah gotcha uh, Carlos Balzan's got a question here is how are you guys hiring effectively um, we use PI um, so you know doing that um, hiring for value you want to elaborate um, for not everyone knows what PI is um, predictive index it's a really good tool it's it's awesome have you I done it? it yeah it's I, great I, if you're not if you don't take the predictive index test with me, I'm not even going to meet with you. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. it tells me whether I actually yeah. meet with you or not. Yeah. So we have a guy who's he's like 85 or whatever. He comes in. He actually interviews most high level people we have, and he's he he owns the franchise or whatever it is for predictive index mm -hmm. in South Florida. So our 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 in house um, talent acquisitions recruiters. I don't exactly know his title. Brian. Anyways, he went and did a course um, with him. Learned all about it. Mm -hmm. And so what it basically is is it's awesome. I mean, the disc is great too, I think, but this test takes, I, I don't even know, like three minutes for somebody mm -hmm. to do. They pick a bunch of words out of a thing and then it spits out um, what that person's profile is, like what they're good at, what they're bad at, what their personality type is, and just really a whole breakdown on that person. And mm -hmm. so obviously, you know, one of the big things I've learned and maybe one of the big things of challenge of getting to that next level, like I said, it's all about right people. Sometimes you have the right people, they're in the wrong seat. So it's, you know, figuring out, making sure you're hiring the best person for the seat, not just for you as a benefit as a business owner, but for the person. When you bring the wrong person, they're in the wrong seat, their life's miserable, you get them into the right seat and, right. you know, it, it changes fast. So. And I think it's a really good point, right? Like disc is amazing. There's nothing wrong with disc, right? right. I think disc is good when you're first getting started. Mm -hmm. But in order to scale effectively, I, I've I'm a recent convert to predictive index, and yeah, I love it. Yeah, somebody told me about it a while ago, and I kind of I didn't take notice of it, and then it got told to me by four or five different people, and I was like, let me let me check this out, and yeah. it, it's it's amazing. Right. Uh, so Jacob Klein wants to know what are your top marketing methods today. Um, it, it's a combination of you know direct mail, internet. Um, we've done some billboard stuff, radio, um, you know, TV, kind of mixture, a bunch of different mm -hmm. things. Okay, uh, so let's say you had the opportunity to go back to two thousand four. Mm -hmm. Talk to young Oliver. Yes. What would you tell him? I took notes because you asked me this question before. <laughs> so okay, what would I do differently? I, I think the biggest thing is it's like you know keep going back to the people. Um, just. Being more patient with people, um, you know, looking at things and saying, you know, what was my part in this interaction with somebody, um, you know, and that's internal people, external people. Um, I have a very, you know, maybe seem laid back in certain ways, but when it comes to business, very like hard charging, I want things done and, you know, want to move really quickly. And, you know, some people don't work like that. So mm -hmm. it's recognizing the differences that for sure, um, you know, 
creating a growth path within the company on the sales side, I probably would have done that differently. And then um, just being open-minded to other people's opinions and perspectives on things, as well as um, learning about change management. I like change. I adapt really quickly. I, I almost need something to be kind of moving, but most people aren't. Mm-hmm. And I would have taught myself about change management, took a course on it. Cause like I said, we shut down the four offices in 2015 and just walked in one day. I was like, okay, it's done. And we didn't even know change management was a term. And there's, there's methodologies and ways to go about it. And I would have loved to, to know <laughs> that other people didn't adapt to change as fast as I did. And then actually learn best practices on how to implement change, which now I have people that know a lot about that. And I've learned a lot about it. So I've never heard the term change management until today, <laughs> Good, but research it now I have learned making yes. changes pisses a lot of people off. Yes. <laughs> so yes, I've learned a couple of things just from my mistakes, right? Like, you know, like, Whoever the influencer is in the room, mm-hmm. tell them about the change before you tell everybody else. Mm-hmm. What other things would you recommend from change? Ma- like, what lessons did you learn from change management that could you know people here could benefit from? I think getting people's input on things, um, giving them an opportunity to help with the change that mm-hmm. you're trying to do, getting their perspectives on things, not throwing everything at some, you know, not making the change, oh, shut down the offices the next day, you know, giving people um, preparation time, um, explaining it. There's actually a very good article by, I believe the restaurant group is called Zinger or Zingerman's or something like that. I can mm-hmm. find it and send it to you and you can like tag it onto here and it's really all about change management. But really like I'm learning a lot about it from some of the people that we brought in from, you know, bigger companies who have like real training on that. So I'm right. really just learning about it. I'm just, you know, more knowing, okay, now it's a term and really understanding, well, everybody doesn't, you know, like change as much as I do. So I read Profit First, which is a great book. Mm-hmm. Everyone that's listening should definitely read it at some point. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things it talks about is, you know, payroll, like the best time to run payroll. It's like, okay, great. I read that book. It's like, okay, payroll, the best days to do payroll is this day and this day. Mm-hmm. So I called the account and said, hey, we're, do- we're doing payroll on this day and this day. Okay. Didn't communicate that message to anybody. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. People freaked out. Like people were talking about quitting their jobs. Like, wow, like I had no idea. Like <laughs> just moving the payday just a couple of days. Yeah, would change things drastically, but that was a lesson learned. <laughs> I mean, sometimes even, yeah, well, anything with comp is ultra sensitive, right? Yeah. So, but, you know, e- even good changes can be sometimes taken like, oh, what what's going to happen? If, you know, for example, same thing with pay. It's like we used to pay every two weeks out commissions. And I think now we pay out every one week, which seems better, right? For everybody to get paid faster. But I mean, there was pushback on that too. Yeah. So, you know, with some of the stuff, I, I, I think, you know, there's just gonna be, yeah, issues. But when it comes to comp and stuff like that, it's ultra sensitive, so. So you mentioned also uh, giving people a path for growth or growth vision. I mm-hmm. can't remember exact words you used. Yeah. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah, I mean, we're, we're kind of still working on that. And I think that that's going to be a big instrumental part in kind of scaling to the next level. But it's, you know, how do you retain um, the best people and how do you kind of give them a growth path internally? And what we're, you know, where a lot of my focus has gone to, you know, just in my evolution of things is, you know, I think on Tony Robbins has like the six needs and the top two needs are personal growth and um, contribution. Personal growth has always been like a huge one for me. Contribution is kind of like where I'm getting to now. It's like, how can you help other people create Mm -hmm. um, and fulfill their own dreams? Or I I call it a painted picture. It's like visualizing your life in three years, five years from now. So that's where, you know, really now that I have specialists in different departments of my business, that's where I'm trying to 
kind of come in and lay a foundation for people that they could come to our company and you know say hey what do you, what is your ideal or your perfect life look like because everybody's is different mm-hmm. and so once you know that having our company be a platform for people to come and kind of like fulfill those dreams and us to help them um, you know structure that I think that's part of it and then yeah just giving a growth path peep um, through you know maybe dispositions acquisitions and then some kind of like you know regional manager type of thing we're kind of working through that right now so gotcha um, and this is a slightly nuanced question so if the answers are the same just let me know mm-hmm. uh, what advice would you give somebody that's starting in wholesaling today <sighs> I, I think it's a really tough time to start because I think it's a lot of people really getting into it. I think it's a lot of people who don't know what they're doing. I question how many of the people teaching it really maybe know what they're doing. <laughs> some do. I, I'm sure some don't. I, I don't really know. But it's a time I would be apprehensive about getting into it. Like I said, I mean, to me, there's a lot of similarities now to 2005 or six, mm-hmm. where, you know, the market's at an all-time high and it's late adopters kind of getting in. And once you kind of start to see that thing happening, everybody's in real estate and getting into all this stuff. Mostly it's like, you know, the writing's on the wall for something to change. So I would be apprehensive, but if somebody is gonna get into it, um, you know, if you are that type of person that can go and learn, and I'm sure there's a lot of good information. I mean, I know there's a lot of really good information out there to learn, and there's some people who are teaching it that are really good, find the best person. And if you're that type of person that can create systems, manage systems, your brain works like that, great, go and do it. But if you don't and your brain doesn't work like that and you work better within a system or within a structure, then go reach out to somebody like us or you guys or you know other companies out there who have a system and, and structure set up and you know join into that, be a part of be a part of something like that. So Well, I like, you know, you got started at a company, you worked there for two years. Yeah. Right? Like, w- one of the complaints I hear from time to time is like, I'm training my competition. Like, I trained exactly. this guy up and he left to compete against me, right? That's life, mm-hmm. right? And so, and I think there's ways to prevent that. I don't want to get into it right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you worked for somebody for two years mm-hmm. to cut your teeth, did a walk through a few hundred houses. Yeah. And so, I've actually had people, you know, I have calls with about selling, you know, coaching and so on. And I'll talk to them, really understand their situation. I was like, look, you can't sign up for my coaching right now because the things I'm going to teach you, you can't even do it. Yeah. Right? Like, what you need to do is go plug in with someone in your market. And fortunately, I know most of the markets. I guess uh, you need to go talk to this person. It's like, I'm basically like a recruiter, mm-hmm. <laughs> a long-distance recruiter yeah. for some of my buddies now. Um, but I think that's a good point, right? Like, if you're trying to get started today, you don't necessarily need to go start from zero. You can work with somebody yeah. and get paid to learn. Yeah, I mean, that's what we're trying to do is like, you know, obviously retention is a big thing and especially the people who are really good and we want people, you know, our kind of thing now is like, hey, build a business within our business. And so, um, and let us help you kind of, you know, get to your dreams and goals and, you know, all that different stuff. But yeah, there there's a lot of nuances in this business. I mean, people, I tell people who aren't in wholesale, what do I do? They're like, I'm like, oh, I'll buy a house for, you know, 60 and sell it for 70. They're like, oh, that's great. You make $10,000 on the deal. Seems so easy. Mm-hmm. There's so many nuances within that and then all the systems and structures and things around that. So, you know, I think, you know, when the market's going good or everything's hot, you know, it's not that hard to do a few deals. Like when things change, it gets hard and you know you need to understand and like know about those nuances and that's where i'm a little bit of fearful because you know i'm looking at all the informations out there it's actually good and we were talking about that before at lunch i wasn't really you know paying attention to industry stuff and about a year ago i you know 
left my business for a little too long and traveled. And when I came back, I'm like, wow, there's all this good information out there. There is a lot of good information. There's a ton of it though. So what do you use? Like, when do you use that information? And it, it's complicated and it's confusing, but I think there is a lot of good information out there and everybody can learn from it and the collaboration right. and the network you've built and everything is, is cool. It's good. Yeah, one of the greatest challenges, and you know, I feel bad for some of these guys because there's so much information out there and relevant, good information. Yeah. But how do you have access to the right information at the right time? Like when you need it, the yeah. timeliness Correct. of the information. Well, so that's like the biggest thing. I have a million ideas and I, and I you know, I, I, a humongous learner. I read as much as I can, like, you know, watch things, podcasts, all that stuff. So it's like having a ton of information. But when you pick the wrong thing to do and you set off down a path, it's a huge you know, you, you pick the wrong thing or at the right wrong time and you go three, four months down a rabbit hole, you've done change, you've done all those different things like that, you spent money, you've done all this stuff and then you have to pull it back. So I think um, there's brain types out there that are, you know, I, I had a, a quote, a coach that I worked really well with and I looked at it as like, there's like I, all these dots in my head, like millions of them and like within there, you know, one out of 10 of them is a really good idea and they're, one of them out of 10 might be okay and the rest are just shit or shit and so <laughs> that's my first curse right yeah so, okay i was trying to lay lay off the cursing but so so and and what he was really good at is i would you know tell him all my ideas and he would be like okay that's a really good idea but we can't do that for three months or that's a really good idea and you could do it right now this is an awful idea you can't do it so i think maybe finding that person who you can kind of bounce that because there there is brain types that they work like that and mm. th it, it really is important there's so much information i mean not just in this industry with everything now there's just over content so you know what do you use when what are you ready for what's really good information what's bad that's it's, which one's it's the right hard. for you and your exactly. personality type your yeah, business totally. your market yeah and everybody's different exactly yeah uh so we had lunch right before this uh, uh interview and you know one of the guys said jokingly like you know what's the magic pill what's the secret sauce and my answer to him well well oliver's been doing it for 14 years and you corrected me <laughs> yeah 16. you've been doing it for 16 years <laughs> Yeah, right, a you've long been, time. You've been wholesaling for 16 yeah. years, right? All right. So I'm going to lean heavily on you on this one. You're seeing the indicators. You're seeing the market. You're, keeping, you're paying attention, and you've been through this once before. What are you going to do when the market takes a dip? What are What am I going to do? What's What are you going to do? Um, I mean, I think you you really have to understand your numbers. You know, you have to know like where your good marketing sources are, where your bad ones. What are your good markets? What are your bad markets? And then you know, pivoting, you gotta move quickly. And that's where the change part of my personality comes in is when things do change. I like, you know, I like change. I don't like a down market, but I'll, I'll always just figure it out. And I think it's just, you, you, you gotta pivot and change. And I think um, it's, it's taking a risk, um, pivoting, um, a leap of faith into something maybe new. We had to switch from direct mail back in 2006 and seven into, REOs and short sales and then Altisource and all those things and figuring that stuff out and then just the resilience to just kind of keep plugging and plugging away until something sticks. And um, yeah, I mean, understanding both sides of the business, the disposition, the acquisition side, um, staying lean, knowing where your P&Ls are and where your costs are, like where can you shave if you need mm -hmm. to, um, switch on a dime, like I talked about the marketing spend, what's good, what's bad spend, um, you know, all that. So what I'm hearing is, there is not like a specific tactic or or marketing or, or anything you're gonna do. It really is gonna be, you know your business so well that you can adjust faster than everybody else. 
Yeah, and that's where I, I, that's where I said if I was new coming into wholesale, I'd be really fearful because I, I could say I could sit here and you know talk about that for an hour. What are you going to do? But if you don't have the experience, if you haven't like crawled through the cracks, if you don't know the nuances, not I, I don't I don't think anything's going to help you. I mean, I, I just don't. That's just, that's what yeah. I think. But that's an honest if you answer. Work hard, yeah, I mean, who who knows? You know, scale down, get small. That's that's you know one way cut cost mm-hmm. and all that. And yeah. Uh, so Knockout Miami wants to know, how are you paying your agents? So I guess that's a great segue here, or mm-hmm. you know, we haven't really talked about it. Is Property Force a brokerage? Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. So then, uh, how do you pay your agents? A commission. Commission. Yeah, on the spread. Okay. Um, and then, let's see, what else is there? <sighs> Uh, I love watching. Can you recommend any good, this Hugo Cabrera, any good REI meetups in the Fort Lauderdale area? No, I haven't. I haven't been to one in a yeah. long time, but I'm, I'm sure online you could find a lot of stuff. I, I don't know how the Brias are. I know before they were super old school. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know if they're it, probably better off watching this show or, you know, yeah. <laughs> getting information online, but I'm sure some of them are good. I, I don't know. I haven't been in a long time. Uh, so who was on this show? Not that long ago, older guy, someone that's seasoned. Um, oh, uh, Matt Larson. That's someone that, you know, mm-hmm. Yeah, so he was saying, like, you know, it's it's interesting to see this phenomenon where Phoenix seems to be the guru capital of the world. Mm-hmm. But not too long ago, it was actually Tampa. Right. Yeah. So have you seen, I don't know, is there any, you know, thoughts on that? Have you seen anything there where you, observations you can make on that? On the guru market switching to Tampa? Or that it was Tampa? Like, did you, were you connected oh, with those Oh, it was Tampa before and now it's Phoenix? Yeah. Oh, because I, w- I don't know. I mean, I always thought Phoenix was, it seemed like where all the marketers came from and the guru I mean, Joe stuff. Joe Polish here doesn't, probably doesn't hurt. Yeah, Joe Polish and Dean Graziosi and those guys all are kind of from the Phoenix market. And so, I don't know. I mean, I always kind of thought it was Phoenix. I didn't know that it was ever Tampa. But, yeah. um, no, I mean... I don't, yeah, no, I, I don't know. I don't pay too much attention to it. I mean, I, li- I like watching all the stuff and getting in information and everything mm-hmm. like that, but I'm not, yeah, I don't know. Uh, so what drives you? What is your why? Um, I think, like I said, um, I, I like building. Um, I like creating. Um, I like um, taking risks, um, you know, having a vision and then building towards that vision and you know, taking challenges, personal growth is a humongous motivator for me. I love learning. I love like getting information from different sources, siphoning it down, implementing it, executing it in our company. And then, you know, really now I think, you know, I'm not totally where I want to be financially. I, I still, you know, want, you know, more and, you know, money is obviously a motivator, but I think now it's kind of getting a little bit into the contribution thing of, of what I talked about with the Tony Robbins and, um, you know, paving the way for other people, watching other people become successful. Um, you know, our, a lot of our um, agents or e- even people who aren't agents in our company buying rental properties or doing hard money loans or doing flips and kind of seeing them do that and seeing them kind of um, work towards their goals and, um, you know, get, get things that are important to them outside of, you know, real estate or money or anything like that. So that's kind of, you know, become a big motivator for me. And then, uh, yeah, creation, I think, and, and problem solving, but just creating a vision is the, is my biggest driver. I, I love the challenge. Like I'll yeah. never stop. I, I just want to keep growing. You're not the kind of person that's just going to retire. No. Yeah, I, I can. And even if it's, 
you know, getting involved in a small business and helping it grow. I just have to push forward. And, and that was like what I talked about with my business partner. It's like, he was different. Like we had a really good business. And some, sometimes I'm looking like, why did I even like want to take on the challenge of growing it? But I kind of know now, I mean, he was happy with, and it, you know, some, like I said, sometimes maybe I should have been happy with what, what we were doing, but I need that challenge. I need that you need all, growth. all the time. Yeah, I need growth. Uh, and that that's that's my biggest thing. So one thing I didn't ask you, I was curious about was how was the expansion into Georgia, right? Like you, you've kind of like swallowed Florida gradually. Mm -hmm. And then we're just gonna go ahead and open another state. Yeah. How was that journey? It was actually good in Georgia. It was a slower process than we thought. And we opened up Georgia and, you know, um, built some investors there, got our list together, all that stuff. And then, you know, went into that market, made mistakes, um, went into, you know, areas that were a little bit too like rural and, you know, different things. And, you know, you learn and, and, and we actually did that market really good. After we did that market successfully, we tried to go into like five states in the next like four months or three months or something like that. But that was that was more of a disaster than Georgia was actually good. It was what the 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 confidence that it gave us to feel like we could just oh we we're going to go nationwide tomorrow, and that wasn't the case. Slightly so. different. Yeah. Um, one thing I was I read uh, in in looking you up was you kind of have a similar uh, goal that I have mm -hmm. in that. Eventually, I want to start buying and helping small businesses like Marcus Limonis. Correct. Like I love the profit show. I haven't watched yeah. it in a very, very long time. Same. But I love that idea. So I just I thought that was that's, cool. Yeah, that's eventually what I would love to start to do. Um, is you know have our culture bring in the right people and you know create a place like I said a property force a platform where people can come you know fulfill their own dreams paint a picture it's all different doing that and you know implementing it a lot of the stuff I learned from outside coaching but then eventually that would be awesome I would love to just you know buy a business that's you know 500,000 a million in revenue like essentially the 10 house business because mm -hmm. I loved going from like the 10 houses to the 50 60 houses right. that part of the business was awesome and I would love to you know get involved in that which is pretty much what the Marcus Limonis thing right. is and so yeah that would be great to do that a little next. bit of a growth junkie yeah exactly uh so you mentioned earlier you know you're you're in the desert kind of plateaued mm -hmm. what is your biggest struggle right now um, I, I think it's just bringing in the, the right people and then um, delegating, not abdicating, staying balanced between, you know, I've had times where, you know, I've been all over the business and you're trying to do everything myself. And then times where I'm like, oh, I got this all figured out. Like, let me just go hands off. So for me, like my biggest, you know, struggle <laughs> Every right time now I've is, said those words, it's, it's come back to bite me. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's like keep, keeping the balance. You know, bring the right people in, like I said, get out of their way, like make things good for them. And then. You know, but still check in and still keep your finger on the pulse of everything. And mm -hmm. so that's, you know, for me, my theme, I, you know, say for 2020, 2019 was balanced. 2020 is, you know, slow and steady wins the race, you know, delegate, not abdicate. So how many hours would you estimate you're working a week running property force? I mean, when things are going good, 20 mm -hmm. to 25 and but. I, I think outside of the office, I, I try to, I'm trying to do a thing where now Thursdays I work from home because a lot of my best thoughts come when I'm outside of the office. I'm constantly, you know, note taking in my phone and I have different systems of organization for all that stuff. But um, yeah, when things are going good, you know, 20, 25 hours in the office, constantly thinking about it, probably a hundred hours a week. And then, but things can go awry and uh, I could be working 60, 70 hours a week. And, you know, that ebbs and flows the beginning of the quarter um, or kicking, you know, in between the new quarter could go to 40, 50 hours 
annual planning and rolling out that that can go more a big thing i found is is i'm a morning person so mm-hmm. i've become a morning person i wasn't but i try to get up at 5 5 30 get to my office by 6 6 30 and from six to nine or six thirty to nine, I, I look at those they're like double hours basically. I think two, three hours then is worth five or six hours once everything starts. So I've kind of gotten a really or good more. system. Or more. Yeah. That morning time I look at it as double time and then, you know, I try to do the rest of my meetings and cadence and when people are coming in from, you know, whatever it is, nine to twelve and then leave and I have the whole day to, you know, do my thing. Right. So um Knockout Miami had another question, which is, um, are all your guys licensed? Are yes. all your acquisition disposition, disposition people licensed? Yeah. Gotcha. And then Bernard Mack wants to know, how are you finding your investors? Um, a lot off of tax records and searching through tax records and yeah. finding people that bought close by and, and then just, you know, putting them into our sales force, databasing them and all that. How big is your organization? People-wise, mm-hmm. um, about twenty-nine to thirty reps, and then probably fifteen to seventeen, but close to fifty. Close to fifty. Mm-hmm. Okay. What is the greatest lesson you've learned? I think you know we talked about it. I mean, just get the right people and you know give them what they need. Servant leadership. Um, yeah. And um, yeah, just uh, the, like I talked a lot about the, ch- the change thing and uh, change management is <laughs> probably that's a it's a huge lesson. I mean, like I said, and, and then I learned a lot about like unit economics from uh, from a coach of mine and P and Ls, and then looking at everything on a P and L, like oh, we're going to do this or that or adjust marketing there. But then what's like the people component of it, and how are those changes going to affect things and stuff? So, so I think a lot of that. Is there a book you've gifted more than any other? Rich Dad Poor Dad. How to win friends and influence people. Good one. Uh, so I'm going to make a quick couple of announcements. Sure. Think about what message you want to leave the listeners with. Okay. Um, guys, we did our workshop uh, a couple weeks ago. Uh, we had incredible feedback. Attendees were blown away uh, about our level of transparency uh, in our business. So if you want to see the workshop make sense for you, please go to www.disruptors.com. And next week, we've got Tom Kroll with Wholesaling Inc. We've convinced him to fly in from Florida as well. He does not want to fly. So uh, Pace actually had to go. He could drive. Pace had to go to Florida and convince him and close him himself to get him out here. Uh, So what message would you want to leave the listeners with? What message? Um, That's tough. Yeah, I mean... Take a risk, you know, go for it, whether it's getting into the industry, whether it's trying to level up, um, you know, take a leap of faith and then um, have the resilience to kind of push through whatever the change may be. And yeah, just, just, you know, do your thing. And, you know, you can kind of work through anything and it's just a lot of hard work, resilience. There's a quote by a guy, um, I think his name is Eric Thomas, do you know, he's like a motivational speaker. Yeah, hip hop preacher hip-hop preacher his quote is everybody wants to be a beast until they see what a beast has to do and yeah. i think it's great and you know you just just go go forward take a risk and then just put your head down and like plow through whatever yeah i love it that's a great message if someone wants to get a hold of you how would they do that um i would say the best way is probably instagram um and yeah my handle is o l i t like tom a l l y and you can reach me there or um yeah, shoot me an email, same thing, ollytally at gmail.com. Perfect. Awesome. 
Thank you very much. Thank you. Appreciate it. All right, no problem. Thank you guys for watching. Thank you.